So, um, as we get moving this morning, I, I want to just say thank you, Carrie Fedone, for doing the artwork back here. Um, just super, super talented. Um, sometimes preachers have crazy ideas, and so um, people like Carrie can make those things happen. Um, and so, thank you. So we're starting a new series this morning called Old School because right now all across our country, um, children are heading back to school. They're going back, and some of you remember because you went back last week, and some of you are dreading it because you go back tomorrow. And others of you who go back tomorrow are super excited about this new day. Um, for, for most of you, you can remember those first days of school. And what it was like to walk into the classroom after this long summer break and experience the new start of a new school year. And there are so many things that go with the first day of school. Because there's this excitement, there's this anticipation that comes with it because today can be the start of something new. And things that happened last year are now in the past, and this is a fresh start. And for some, it's a chance to go to a new school or to a new place. And with that new school and with that new place is the chance to make new friends and to start over and almost to reinvent who you are. And so you go with this anticipation, and you sit in your desk, and you listen to your teachers, and you try to figure out how this new year is going to work. You figure out the most important things. When is lunch? <laughs> and recess. And how am I going to make it from class to class and still have time to socialize in between? But the start of this new year brings so much anticipation. It also brings some fear and anxiety. It brings fear and anxiety because you do not know what tomorrow is going to look like. You don't know who's going to be in your classes. You don't know which teachers or which professors you're going to have. And tomorrow might not look like you expected it to look. And so with all the excitement, there's also this fear. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, this is the second letter that we have. It's probably more like the third letter that he wrote because there were probably at least four of these letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. But we're going to start in chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1. For we know... That if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan. And are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is 
to come. And so Paul, in this letter to the church in Corinth, talks about this heavenly tent, this dwelling, and he talks about an earthly tent or an earthly dwelling, this body. And then he talks about this dwelling place, then he talks about being clothed. And the reason you want to be clothed, and this is just like, duh. The reason you want to be clothed is so that you're not found naked. So so what's the big deal about being found naked? Naked is vulnerable. Correct? Naked is this is who I am and there is no way to hide who I am. You can see it all. And so you don't want to be found naked. The question that Paul, I think, wants us to be asking right here is where is it in Scripture that people were found naked? And of course, it's in the garden where people, man and woman, are found naked before God. And so Paul is trying to help you flash back and to think back to the garden and this story that begins unfolding in the beginning. And so in chapter 3 of Genesis, there is this utopia. There is this relationship with God and man, and things are as they were intended to be. This is what the world was supposed to be like. And then, verse 7 and 8, then the eyes, after they eat the fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to man, Where are you? So they have this problem. After they disobey God, life changes. Their eyes are open, their perception, their perspective changes, and they have a new view of the world. They see themselves differently. They see one another differently. And then, to make things worse, as they come to this realization that now things are not as they should be, they are cursed and they're kicked out of the garden. And they find themselves on the outside of the garden looking in, longing for things to be as they once were. Like, if we could just go back and undo what we did, but we can't. And now we're on the outside and we're looking in, and we don't know how to get back to where we were supposed to be. 
And so because of this new perspective, because of this new way of seeing things, they take fig leaves and they cover themselves with them. You see, fig leaves allow you to control what other people see. Because you can sew them together, you can fashion them, you can hold them wherever you want them, and you can control what everyone else sees. And if we're pretty honest, it's very easy to have all kinds of fig leaves when we come together as family. Because let's be honest, there are certain things about ourselves that we don't want everyone else to see. Because if we're honest, we don't like what we see in ourselves. Because we realize our condition. And so Paul is talking to these people and he's saying, yes, you have this earthly body, you have this earthly dwelling place, and you have these clothes, but there's going to be this point where those are set aside and you're going to receive this new body, this new dwelling place, these new clothes. And when you receive those, there's no chance that you're going to be found naked. And on top of that, I have given you this spirit of mine to live within you as a deposit, guaranteeing this life that you have. And so God begins this process of reconciling the world to himself. Because after the garden, there's this problem. Man and woman are on the outside looking in, and God is still there, and the relationship has been shattered. And how then do you get back to the way things were supposed to be? And when you find yourself on the outside looking in, this becomes the new reality. Things are broken. Things are not right. Death and destruction rule the day, and I don't see any signs of that changing. And this is where man and woman find themselves. Outside of the garden, looking in. And so God calls this man named Abraham. And he says, I want you to leave everything that you know. And I want you to go and embrace this new world that I am going to create. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave all that you know, all that you hold dear, and go. And we're going to create this new world together. And this new world together is going to be set apart. And it's going to have this very distinct purpose that no other nations have ever had before, they're not going to exist just simply for themselves. They're going to exist for the sake of the world. And their purpose, their mission is to be a blessing to everyone who ever lives. And God promises that he's going to do that through his Messiah, his chosen one. And they wait and they watch. And for thousands of years, they're wondering, when is this coming one coming? When is this going to happen? When is God going to reconcile? When is God going to redeem? When is he going to make all things new? And then when he shows up, they don't recognize him because this is not what they thought the Messiah would look like. 
And then when the Messiah dies, surely this could not be the one you talked about because Messiahs who come to save don't die. And so, these people are left waiting and wondering when is God going to show up. Wondering if things will ever get back to the way they were supposed to be. Hmm. See, in our search for God, because that's what happened when man and woman found themselves on the outside of the garden. In our search for God, we created this world where we thought we could be good enough. Because honestly, if our problem in the beginning was disobedience to God, then surely obedience to Him would help us get back to the way things were supposed to be. And so God's creation decided to create this new world where we didn't really need a Savior, we just needed a helper. Because if we could be good enough and if we could get the rules right, then we could get close enough that we just needed someone to get us over the hump. But that is not the gospel. See, that's not the good news of Jesus Christ, that you're almost good enough apart from him. And then with him, he can give you the extra nudge you need to get there. The good news is this earthly tent, this earthly dwelling is passing away. And it is completely incapable of getting you where you need to go. But the gospel is that in Christ we are clothed in him to be reconciled to him. To be brought back into the relationship. See, the problem started, though, with the chair. It started with our perspective. Because one of the things you'll find out when you pick the chair in your room is the perspective you have of the classroom has a lot to do with where you sit. And depending on where you sit in the classroom, you have a different view of everything happening around you. If you sit closer to the front, they say it's easier to pay attention and you do better in classes. If you sit in the back, it's harder to stay focused. But regardless of where in the room you are, you always have a different view from the people sitting around you because of your perspective. But there's another problem with the perspective of the chair. Because every classroom that you sit in has some walls. And walls do something really well. They limit your vision. Walls limit your vision. They limit your ability to see. They limit your ability, ability to see what is outside of where you are. There's this story in Matthew's gospel where John the Baptist finds himself in prison. 
and he is concerned and he's questioning and he's wondering and he sends word to Jesus through his disciples and he says, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah or are we, are we waiting and still, still searching for someone else? See, John has this problem with his vision. The walls that surround him, the prison, prison walls, limit his ability to see what is outside of where he is. And so Jesus sends word back to John. He says, hey, I want you to understand, you, you can't see all of this because of where you are. But the deaf can hear. And the blind can see. And the mute can talk, and the lame can leap, and the, the dead are being raised. Don't, don't lose faith. Don't lose heart. Keep trusting in me. Just because you can't see outside of where you are doesn't mean I am not at work outside of where you are. Some of you have lost a loved one someone that's really close, and it changes your perception. And it makes it really difficult to see what's happening outside of where you are because of what you're experiencing in that pain. Some of you lost a job. And in that moment, we focus so much on what's going on where we're sitting that we fail to see What's happening outside of the room that we're in right now? But see, the, the walls also limit one other thing. They are, they're limiting our ability to see what could be. And so Paul is telling them, hey, there's this earthly tent, this earthly dwelling that you have that is coming and this is how it could be. And in your pain and in your struggles, it's going to be really difficult to keep your eyes fixed on what could be. There's this heavenly dwelling that you're waiting for, and I'm giving you my spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing the hope that you have in Messiah of something beyond this, of a new day, of a new world. And so he continues in Corinthians. He says, Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So there's this new world that we understand that's coming and we understand it and trust in it by faith. And throughout the Gospels, throughout the Old Testament, and even into Paul's letters, there's this idea of the present age that's passing away, this age of darkness where we find ourselves now. And then there's this age to come where Christ is restoring and reconciling all things, and all things are being made new. And Paul wants you to understand that you live in this tension between these two worlds, 
We have one foot in this world that's passing away, and we have one foot in this world that is to come as Christ is reconciling and renewing and redeeming all things. And that's what, as Leonard was talking, that's what baptism represents. It's this move from this present world that's passing away into this new world where we are redeemed and we are made perfect in the eyes of God. That this relationship is reconciled, this relationship is restored, that things are as they should be. And the problem is when you have one foot in each world, it's really difficult to see what God is doing in this new world because we're surrounded by the death and we're surrounded by the destruction of this present age. But we also understand that through the cross, Christ is redeeming and renewing and reconciling all things. And you make this transition, this move from one world to the other. And what we realize in this was it was never what we thought in the garden. You see, when we were put outside of the garden, we began this search to find God, but understand it was never about man searching for God. It's always been about God searching for man. It's always been God who was searching for us. And the problem is the perspective that we had. That we thought it was up to us to get back to God. But it was God who never stopped pursuing you. So God enters this picture and he says, but the Lord called to man, where are you? It's God searching for man. And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. Maybe one of the most troubling passages in all of Scripture. This relationship with God that was and was supposed to be so intimate and close is now broken and fractured. And they feel the need to hide, not only behind fig leaves, but behind bushes in hopes that God would not see them. See, this was the new reality. Man and woman outside of this perfect place, outside of this garden that God called good, outside of this relationship that was as it was supposed to be. And then there's a story. There's a story of a man named Enoch that we read over and we gloss over and we think nothing really of because it's hidden in this genealogies, seven generations that get us to a person named Noah. But I want you to listen to the story of Enoch. And when Enoch, verse 21 of chapter 5, had lived 65 years he became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters, 
Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God and then was no more because God took him away. But there's some significance in this short story. See, it was Enoch who walked faithfully with God. But we have this problem. In the garden, when man and woman are separated, it's man and woman who find themselves on the outside looking in. And I think for a Jew to read this in the the first century or even going back further, there's this light that has to go on. Because it's Enoch who walked faithfully with God. There's a, a question. Where is the place that God walked? See, it's not so much about what happens in the story. It's about where it happens. See, the place that God walked with man was the garden. And so if Enoch were to walk faithfully with God, one of two things had to have happened. Either Enoch was allowed back into the garden, or God left the garden to pursue man. From the onset, God has not stopped pursuing His people. He is pursuing you with a passion and a love that is unequaled. And no matter where you find yourself, He is there. And you turn away and you decide, I'm not going to do what you say in my disobedience, and He is there. And you say, God has forgotten me, and I'm alone, and He finds Himself right there looking at you face to face telling you, reminding you, I haven't given up on you. I haven't forsaken you. I haven't forgotten you. I am here. See, it was never man's search for God. It has always been God's search for man. And there are times where it's almost as if we look up and we're surprised that God is standing right in front of us. And we see Him through the people that we gather with as we struggle, as we cry, as we mourn, as we celebrate, as we laugh. We see Him in one another's faces. See, this is the new day. This is the start. This is a fresh start, a new day. And he has not stopped pursuing you. He has not stopped his pursuit and his undying, unfailing love for you. See, the the beauty of this is he's going to talk about 
is there's this new creation that is happening right in front of you. Would you listen to these words? Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you the opportunity to take pride in us so that what you can answer the, or so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some will say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore, all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is that journey into this new world, this new creation that Christ is bringing to pass, that you are now a part of the same calling that Abraham received to go leave all that you know and embrace this new world that we are creating is the same calling that you and I have received from Christ. Go leave your world, your kingdom, and embrace his, and let's build it together. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Understand, it's not that it, the new creation is coming. It's come. It's here. You were made new. You were redeemed. This is the first day. This is the new start. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness See, it's through that moment that we die. And understand, on the cross, Jesus takes all of our blame. He takes all of our pain. He takes all of the hurt upon himself. And there, in that moment, dying, he forgives it. It's his words from the cross. Father, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. See, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the cross is not just that on the cross your sins are forgiven, but it's rather that as Christ is dying, broken, and hanging on a cross, he is forgiving those who put him there. Jesus did not come to save you from God. He came to reveal God as Savior. And it's not just simply that on the cross your sins are forgiven. It's that on the cross he embodies this divine 
forgiveness. And there, wrongs are let go of. And Jesus says, you want to be a part of this new world? Then you need to live as I do. Embodying God's divine forgiveness. This new day, this new world. How is God reconciling the whole world to himself? He's not holding their sins against them, but he's forgiving them. And if you're going to be a part of this new world, you go and do the same. You go and embody that forgiveness to a world that does not deserve it. Because ultimately Christ embodied that forgiveness for you and I who did not deserve it. There's a rabbi named Rabbi Pinchas. And one day he came to his disciples and he asked them a really intriguing question. He said, when is the moment that night becomes day? Because it's very clear there's times when it's night and there's very clear that there's times when it's day, but then there's this in-between where it's transitioning from night to day. How do you know when the night is gone and the day has come? And one of the students, one of his disciples, looks at him and he says, well, Rabbi, is it the moment that you can tell a sheep from a dog? And Rabbi Pinchas says, no, no, that's, that's not it. And another disciple asks, well, is it the moment you can tell a palm tree from a fig tree. No, no, that's not it either. Well, then, Rabbi, when is the moment you can tell that night is over and day has come? And Rabbi looks at his students and he says, it is the moment that you can look into the face of another person, any other person and see your brother or sister. See, this new world that Christ is creating is one where we can look at people, all people, and not see the color of our skin, not see our political affiliation, not see our upbringing, not see rich or poor, but see our brother or sister. Maybe estranged, maybe searching, but still created in the image of God, loved by Him, pursued by Him. Then, then it is a new day. See, Christ has called you to leave your world, your kingdom, to give up what you are searching for and what you are seeking for the sake of His, His kingdom, His world. And this is the beginning of a new 
day. Father, today, we pray that as your people, we will go out from this place with the love of Christ deeply dwelling in our hearts. That it's him who searched us out of the darkness and invited us into new life in his glorious light. And we find ourselves, Father, forgiven and free, clothed in Christ and made new, reconciled to you. And Father, given this mission, this purpose, that we would be reconciling the world to you, Father, for this is the good news of the gospel, that we aren't enough, that our kingdom is not enough, and that our obedience is never enough, but Father, through Christ, we are made more than enough. And so, Father, may we trust in you. May we simply place our lives in your hands, knowing that you're in control. And, Father, that you have this new dwelling place waiting for us, these new clothes. And, Father, we cannot wait to shed the old ones, to get rid of what is for what will be. And, Father, we have simply this one hope, that Jesus saves And so, Father, we place our lives in his hands, trusting, knowing that your spirit lives within us, a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've never entered into life in Christ, we offer you the invitation this morning. Come, die to yourself, be buried with him, be raised into a new life. If we could just simply pray for you wherever you are. We're going to have ministry staff. We're going to have shepherds around the auditorium. But whatever your need, come while we stand and we sing.